Are you listening? Damn. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. I'm Emery Hunt, the czar of the playbook, and welcome to another edition of Direct Snap. This is episode four. And we're going to call this episode Clearing the Football Smoke. And I like this episode a lot because we're going to get to a myriad of football topics from fan questions all the way down to myth busters. So if you're not familiar with Direct Snap, you should be and you should be ashamed of yourself because this is a great podcast. But Direct Snap is a show where we address controversial football topics that many want to either avoid completely or tap dance around. We attack it head on a gap pressure right there in your face. But you can follow us live on Twitter, not live, but you can follow us on Twitter at FBall Game Plan. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Vine under the same tag, Football Game Plan. And don't forget to check out and subscribe to our YouTube channel where you're going to see all of our video previews, analysis, all kind of good stuff like that. And that's located at youtube.com slash football game plan. Bookmark our website, footballgameplan.com. And also, if you want to catch this show again or find it archived, you can find it on our website at footballgameplan.com slash podcast. And the one thing I really like about what we do here at Football Game Plan is our interaction with the fans and people on Twitter, other analysts. We do a great job with that. I think we do a great job with that. We keep it conversational. We don't attack anyone. And so I love to answer fan questions and, and other analyst questions uh, for this podcast. And that's how we're going to start this off. And the first question comes from Luke Easterling. He's a great guy, great follow on Twitter, at Luke Easterling. He asked the question, who are the real Buccaneers closer to week one? or yesterday's Buccaneers that beat the, the stuffing out of the New Orleans Saints uh, yesterday. So that's a great question, Luke, and it actually is one of the points I'm going to make later on in the show about the media perception. But I will say this. I think the Bucks team is somewhere in the middle, in between what you saw week one, in between what you saw yesterday versus New Orleans. I think when you look at the Bucks, we knew this. These are the things we knew coming in. We knew they were going to be a young team, number one. We knew they were going to have tremendous potential offensively because of great quarterback play and the talent they have on the flanks and also in the backfield. They got great receivers, great tight end that could block and also catch and have a talented stable of backs. I've always been a big fan of their stable of backs in the backfield. The biggest question we had offensively was that offensive line. And I think you saw yesterday the same things you saw in week one. They were inconsistent. They did some things well, a lot better than what we saw versus Tennessee, but still some of the ugliness showed itself against New Orleans as they were also able to apply pressure throughout the course of the game. So I think to answer your question, let's say offensively to answer your question, they're somewhere in between. Now defensively, I think for Tampa Bay, if they can just find a consistent pass rush coming off the edge, we know what they can do on the inside. I think they're a stout in that battery, both defensive tackles, Mike Backer, and also deep down the middle of the field. I think they can play well. I think they have talent on the flanks at corner. I like their linebacking core. You know, Quan Alexander is going to be a star right next to Levante David, who's already a star. And so I just think the the real question for Tampa Bay will be, can they get consistent play from those defensive ends? So I would say overall, Tampa Bay is what you saw in both weeks. So that means to me, that's an inconsistent football team that's going to be somewhere right around the middle. And I said in my preseason preview that Tampa will look a lot better offensively because of Jameis Winston. And you saw yesterday what the offense can look like when he has protection, when he's able to scan the field, he's able to hit plays down the field, whether it be deep or intermediate or even short. So I I would say Tampa Bay right now is still, I would say, teetering along that middle line, a little bit of what you saw last week and a a little bit of what you saw uh, yesterday for New Orleans. But thanks for the question, Luke. That's a great question right there. Next question comes from at Blitz Mag Prez. Malik Spann asked a question, Has the NFL caught up to Chip Kelly's offense? And what we saw yesterday, it would lead you to believe so. But I think when you look at Chip Kelly's offense and what it's designed to do, um, what what he really wants to do is spread the field to run the football. Now, that's a two-part statement because part one, he has down pat. They're going to spread the football field. Now, part two is inconsistent because he's not running the football. You know, you reach out to go get DeMarco Murray, you reach out to go get uh, Ryan Matthews, and you still have Darren Sproles in the fold, 
and you barely use any one of them in a running game. And that's the biggest concern. Running the football, you know, is a, uh, stopping a run is about attitude and want to. Running the football is about commitment. You got to want to run the football. We saw Dallas last year made a commitment to the running game. We see teams like San Francisco. And quiet is kept. People talk about New England. They are always one of the top rushing teams in the NFL. So it's about commitment. You have to make that commitment to run the football. Personnel-wise, the Eagles have more than enough talent to get that job done. And you also look at what they have along the offensive line. And I've always preached this. Guard, center guard has to be strong. That's where your offensive line is built. It's not the sexy positions of the offensive tackles or the, the gritty, tough position of the right tackle. You have to be strong in your battery. Your guard center guard play has to be excellent. And right now, they're not getting that. Plus, you just can't up and decide on a drive, okay, we're going to run the football. Running the football is also a mindset. You just can't pick up on a Sunday and like, yeah, we're going to run the football today. No, you got to really want to run. And if you're spending the majority of your time working on your passing game, guys are not aggressive enough in the run defense to, and I'm sorry, in the uh, run offense department. So I think the NFL, I don't say, I wouldn't say the NFL has caught up to Chip, Chip Kelly's offense. I think Chip Kelly is, is limiting what his offense can potentially become because of his lack of commitment to the ground game. You just can't let DeMarco Murray have five carries at the end of what the first quarter or first half, something like that. Like you have to make that commitment to run the ball. And if they do that, then yes, their offense will look like it looked last year when they had, when they had LaShawn McCoy uh, doing his damage in the backfield. So I think running the football is about commitment. It's about attitude. It's about uh, being physical within your interior. And right now on all three fronts, the Eagles are not doing that. And I really appreciate that question, Malik. Thank you so much. And the next question comes from Caleb Michael on Twitter. He's at MKB9198. He asked the question, how relevant is scheme for players and coaches? We talk about scheme fit for players, but coaches can't coach or refuse to Im implement beneficial plays simply because that isn't, quote unquote, their system. That's a great question. That's a unique question because when you think about it, you may have a coach come in, let's say a Gary Kubiak, oh, we want to run this. This is my scheme. This is my offense, and this is how we're going to run it. You know, I'm going to get personnel to fit my offensive scheme. I get that. You know, but a lot of times, and this is one of the things we talk about a lot here at Football Game Plan, uh, talent supersedes system. If you're good enough, you can fit in any offensive scheme, any defensive scheme possible. One of the examples I like to use is, you know, when you go back and think about someone like uh, Reggie White when he was in Philadelphia. Philly ran a bare front, ran a 4-3, you know. He got, he got to Green Bay. You saw him in a 3-4 defense. When he played in the USFL in the Memphis Showboats, they played in a 3-4 and a 4-3. So, but you rarely remember him being classified as a D3, uh, I'm sorry, a 3-4 DN only. You know, he can only play the five tech. No, he was a good football player that played defensive end. Whether it was a 40 front, 30 front, it didn't matter. You know, so I think that's one thing where a lot of coaches tend to overlook and a lot of players kind of put the handcuffs on themselves thinking like, well, I'm only a slot receiver. I can do well in the slot. I, I get understanding, you know, where you're good at, where your strengths are and, and what you feel comfortable doing. But at the end of the day, you're a football player. You got to get out there and compete. You got to get out there and make plays. I think that's where a lot of players and coaches get lost. So let's say, for instance, now, obviously, you, you don't want to have, let's say, someone like Peyton Manning running the, you know, the triple option that, that, that doesn't fit his skill set. What I'm saying is when you look at, let's say, a team that's struggling um, right now offensively, let's say you look at Denver and you look at how they struggled versus Kansas City and what they couldn't do versus the Chiefs, you know, and what they went to doing that led them to ultimately have success offensively in that last quarter, that last those last two drives. You know, you see right now Peyton Manning can't move. So you might want to eliminate all your bootlegs. You also might want to eliminate him getting from under center because, again, the age and the, the lack of athleticism, that's just more time for the defensive lineman to get there and put him on the ground. Have him operate in the shotgun. Have him go a little bit up tempo. You can still run your offense out of the gun 
You know, you can still run downhill if you put him in a pistol. You know, you so that way you don't lose the downhill element by putting the running back on the side where you just limited to east and west. Uh, put him, putting him in a pistol allows him to then still be able to run downhill. Allow him to call his own plays. You know, these are the things that you can help complement Peyton Manning at this juncture in his career. Now, early on in his career, we know what he did off of play action out that A set in Indianapolis. He did, he did a great job running the football and also throwing the football off play action. So I just think a lot of times it's about getting out of your own way as either a coach or a player and allowing yourself to be productive. So I think to answer your question, it, it's a good mix to maximize potential and talent. But when you have talent that's doing thing that can do things in other ways, you know, you have to have that ability to adjust. So you can't be married to a scheme. You can't be married to, you know, a personnel groupings. Cause let's say for instance, you may come in one game and this team is terrible versus the run, but you're a passing offense. And you're going to say, well, we're going to do what we do best. We're going to throw the football. This is our game. But now you, you, you're not playing to their weakness. You're probably playing to their strength. You know, you have to be able to abandon and get back to basics. And I think the more teams understand that you can be whatever offense you want to be, but the core elements of football, you know, and those basic things you have to be good at. Blocking, tackling, running downhill, controlling the clock. You can do whatever you want. You can be a spread team. You can be a, you know, a heavy motion team, a heavy shifting team. But at the end of the day, you better be able to block the guy in front of you. You better be able to tackle the runner with the ball. You better be able to get off blocks, and you better be able to hold the football when you're nursing a lead or, or trying to uh, seal a victory. So those are the core things I think they have to players. And, I mean, sorry, coaches have to do or teams have to do, um, and not be not have themselves be married to a scheme. Because if you come into a game and someone takes away what you do best, well, what else can you do? Nothing, because that's all you you put your all of your uh football eggs in one basket so hopefully that answers your question Caleb and I, I do appreciate that question coming this way the next question comes from Dane O-T-F-Y-L at it's a black guy on Twitter that's a funny name funny cool handle right there it's a black guy he asked a question can you give us your take on Alex Smith and dink and dunk offenses as a whole I'm of the mindset that if it wins you games you do it um okay that's a fair point, and then I agree with you. Do what works best for you. Um, you don't want Alex Smith out there playing not to his strength. And so I don't have a problem with Alex Smith. Where I have a problem with Alex Smith is versus pressure and in, in uh, what they call those things, critical football situations. So like end-of-game situations, your four-minute offense, your two-minute offense, your backed-up offense. Those are the things where – those are places where I have questions about Alex Smith. He's a good athlete, very good athlete. I think he you can do more with him in his legs, even at this point in his career. I think that's where the bulk of his career was wasted because a lot of his athleticism wasn't being utilized like it was at Utah under Urban Meyer. So I don't ha have a problem with him having to, to go with that dink and dunk approach. I think if you're going to go with that approach, your personnel better match what you – uh, what you're planning to do. So let's say if you have a dink and dunk offense, the guys you're dunking and dinking it to better be able to make one miss and get yards and chunks. You know, those are better. Be, you better have a team full of punt returners at wide receiver. And I think the Chiefs do. You have a guy in Jeremy Macklin that can do that. You have DeAnthony Thomas, although I think he should be strictly a tailback, but, but that's another story, another episode of Direct Snap. But he can definitely make one miss and get upfield. You see what happens with Travis Kelsey when he gets the football. The guy they drafted in the fifth round, James O'Shaughnessy out of Tennessee, I'm sorry, out of Illinois State, is another one that can catch a short pass and make people miss. So I think they've created their offense around what Alex Smith does well. Jamal Charles is another one. So in that offense, he'll function perfectly. Now, if it gets crunch time, if it gets in, you know, in those crucial situations where you need your quarterback to quote-unquote make a play, that's why I have a question about Alex Smith and what he brings to the table. But the Dink and Duck offense, I don't have a problem with it, especially if you have it built like the Chiefs have it built. I think they do a great job of building around Alex Smith, Alex Smith and building around his skill set. They've gotten guys that can take those dinks and those dunks and take it the distance. I would be, if I was a defender, I would not want to be one-on-one -on -one with Macklin. Don't want to be one-on-one -on -one 
for damn sure with De'Anthony Thomas, Travis Kelsey, O'Shaughnessy, none of those guys because they are all really good after the catch. I think that's how they've crafted their offense. I think that's why you're going to see their offense continuously have success uh, under Alex Smith. So I don't have a problem with him. I think Andy Reid is doing a great job coaching and also game planning around what they do well, and their personnel definitely fits. So thanks for the question, Dane. It's a black guy. Uh, Follow him on Twitter. And the next question we have comes from Talking Monkey at Hamster Flu on Twitter. He asked the question, is short area lateral quickness the most important trait for running backs to be successful in the NFL? I think that's a great question, by the way. And speaking as a former running back, I will speak from qualified experience, I must say. Now, I wasn't a world beater, but I knew a little bit about the running back position. I think short area lateral quickness helps you, period, on a football field. But as far as running backs is concerned and and answering your question, um, when you look at the back nowadays, you know, and I have to go, I have to get on this soapbox for a second. You see these guys coming out of these spread systems in high school, you know, so where the lanes are already created. So you guys are just running through open lanes, which is why you see a guy like Jonathan Gray, who has had, who was held as the greatest running back in Texas football life, struggle at the University of Texas. But when you look at his high school film, you can see why he was struggling. And I told this story before. We looked at his high school film, and we were like, man, he is running through gaping holes. No one is touching him, and the guys he's playing against, you know, they don't have the athleticism to match. So, yes, he has a good foundation as far as, like, traits are concerned, but he's not that quote-unquote guy that they're making him out to be. And it's showing itself uh, right now at the University of Texas. But jumping back to your question, I think running backs do have to have the short area lateral quickness, you have to be able to make guys miss. Each level you you go in, in football from park ball, park, I say park ball because I'm from New Orleans, so from little league to middle school to high school, from high school to college, from college pro, the talent gets better and your weaknesses get exposed even more. So you have little room for error every level you go up. And I think in the NFL, by everyone being bigger, stronger, faster, what you thought was a hole wasn't going to be a hole. And if you have someone standing there right there in the hole, you have to be able to make him miss. If you have someone standing right there in space, if you catch a flat pass or bouncing it outside, you have to be able to make that person miss. Even just to get outside. Let's say the, the let's say you're running a, a dive play or a belly play and it's designed to go downhill between the, the A and B gap, but it's clogged, it's cloudy, and you want to bounce it outside to that C and D gap you have to have that quickness to get there. And I think a lot of running backs see it, but a lot of running backs can't make it happen. So when you hear me say something like this guy's feet and eyes are in unison, that means that not only can he see it, but he can also get there. And that's the part that a lot of backs can't do. So to answer your question again, yes, that's important. Um, It would be number two behind vision because you have to see it in order to get there. If you can't see it, you'll never get there. Um, but I think a lot of backs can see it, but can't get there. And that's where the lateral quickness comes into play. So great question, Talking Monkey at Hamster Flu. I appreciate that. And we'll take a quick break and come back and jump right into our topics for the day. Life is a wild ride. From the beginning, you're told you're special. You're the best, that no one is better than you. But as you get older, you realize that it gets tougher. And those things you were told as a youngster may not be all factual or remain true. You start to take losses, some big, some small, some hurt more than others, but losses nonetheless. However, you do win sometimes, and if you're lucky, you win a lot. You savor some victories more so than others, but you love that feeling, that adulation, that fanfare that comes with it. So you try to figure out how you can keep that feeling going, and you come to the conclusion that it's through hard work, through commitment and dedication. So when you find yourself with an insurmountable task or a potential situation that may look too tough to where you can't see a win coming from it, you then go back to all of those nice and positive things you were told as a kid, as a teen, as an adult that has given you confidence. You then look back at all the preparation and hard work you put into this upcoming test, and you realize you can accomplish any obstacle that's put in front of you. Those are the life lessons I've learned, and those are the things that football has taught me. And welcome back to Direct Snap. I'm Emery Hunt, the czar of the playbook, but you guys already knew that. And you can get that book, What Did Football Teach Me? 
on our website at footballgameplan.com slash books. And we also have another one called Football, A Love Story, which is a great book in itself. You guys have to check these two things out, man. Over 100 interviews with current and former players and coaches, guys that have played the football game that are now either entertainers or executives that are doing big things. That, and they talk about what the game taught them, why they love football, you know, what keeps them involved, you know, what lessons they took from it. I mean, it's a great read. We've got interviews with guys like Brett Billima, Carl Banks, uh, Dion Buchanan, John Harbaugh, Mike Singletary, Ed, Ed Reed, Howard Mudd, you know, Mike Bobo, Dino Babers, Ross Tucker, Doc Holliday, from head coach at Marshall. So we got a bunch of guys involved in this project, and I think that's a great read for people to check out. Go on our website at footballgameplan.com slash books and get both. You can also check out, by the way, Another book that we came out with last year called Stiff Arming Football Myths. That's a great book because we took a look at 50 of football's greatest fairy tales and broke those down and debunked those myth that you, myths that you hear each and every Sunday. Um, and that ties right into, that's called a segue, by the way, where you say one thing and it leads you right into a point that you're going to make next. So that ties into the next section of our or the next segment of our podcast here on Direct Snap, Episode 4, Clearing the Football Smoke. We're going to bust a myth right quick. And this is one you hear constantly at each and every football game. I heard it a lot this past weekend in college football, in NFL, playing at home matters. Now, here's the thing. I used to think playing at home mattered until I realized, like, wait a minute. When you're out there on the field, you really don't hear anything. So crowd noise doesn't matter. And if you can't catch a football at home, you won't be able to catch a football on the road. Why? Because you can't catch. It has nothing to do with where you're playing or how loud the crowd is. And I get it. You want to have the fans think that they're making a huge impact on the game. But to be completely honest, guys, the crowd noise doesn't affect the game unless you're heavily reliant on you know, your uh, calls at the line of scrimmage in which you can use hand signals to make the, from the quarterback to the receivers. And along the offensive line, you're close enough to where you can hear one another. So essentially, crowd noise is just something that people tell the fans to make them believe that they have an impact on the game. Because truth be told, when you're out there as a player and the ball snaps, <clears throat> all you hear is your own breathing. You hear your own thoughts because you're trying to remember your assignment on the play because the plays are so goddamn long. So you're trying to remember all that stuff. You even have time to worry about whether or not, uh, you know, the crowd is booing me or not. Now, after the, the play, after the whistle blows and the play is over, and that, that, what, quick 15 seconds in between plays, yes, you hear all the crowd noise, you hear everything. You hear it on the sidelines when you're on the sideline trying to get adjustments. So that's when crowd noise affects you, so to speak. But during the play, no, not at all. And also, I've heard this, too, on broadcast. Like, oh, well, you got to make this play on the road. Like, no, you just got to make the play, period. You know, oh, well, I mean, you can't drop that pass, you know, on the road. Like, dude, you can't drop that pass, period. You know, playing home or away does not matter. If it mattered in the NFL, like a lot of people like to make it think, well, you know, you can't, you can't play the Seahawks at home as if the stadium – is the reason why the Seahawks are winning. Seahawks are winning because they have a great defense, good running game, very good quarterback. They're not winning because of CenturyLink or the Kingdom or whatever it may be called now. They're not winning because of that. They're winning because they're a good football team. You know, I've never seen a stadium win a game for for an NFL team. Oh, well, you know, I mean, playing in the Superdome is tough. How'd that work out for the Saints yesterday versus Tampa Bay? Exactly. Here's the thing. When people say that, it's just more of those cliches that people use to fill time. So, you know, playing home or away doesn't matter. If it mattered in the NFL, like the original point I was trying to get to before I got sidetracked, if it mattered, everybody would finish 8-8. Eight and eight. The Chiefs and the Seahawks would have played in multiple Super Bowls. The Saints would have played in multiple Super Bowls in the 90s because of the Dome Patrol and how loud the Superdome used to be. So let's not kid ourselves. If you just step back and think about it, it really doesn't matter if you're playing home or away. You know, and truth be told, football players don't matter where they're playing. They just want to compete. 
You can tell somebody, hey, our game is tomorrow at 7.30 in the morning. I guarantee they'd be up ready to go at 4 o'clock in the morning because they want to play. They want to get out there and compete. doesn't matter if they're playing in the street, at the barbershop, at Lambeau Field. doesn't matter. Home or away does not matter. It really doesn't. So don't don't feed into the the hype that's being put out there by the majority of the media saying like, oh, they're playing. I'm picking this team because they're playing at home. That's the dumbest reasoning behind any pick that you make playing home or away. No, that doesn't work. That's a myth. And I just bust that for you guys. Um, so hopefully you take that. And now you, too, can become more informed when you talk to your friends. <laughs> so that's the myth buster for the day on uh, direct snap. And it also ties into the media. I mentioned the media, but it ties into the next point I want to make about the media perception and how the media, you know, can shape the, the, the thought process of the public. And, and that's why I'm always at odds with the media, even though I am in the media technically. Well, I guess I am. Yeah. I would say I'm in the media, but think about it. Think about what we heard from week one from the media. Mariota is the perfect quarterback in history. He is making every play he's making is excellent. Look at that great, perfect Hall of Fame. I want him to marry my daughter-esque dump-off pass. Oh, my God. He is manipulating the defense with his dump-offs and his slants. This dude threw the he threw a quick slant. And Kendall Wright took it 52 yards after making the safety look like a fool in the open space. But guess who got the credit? Mariota for making a great pass. Oh, my God, he's so accurate. Fast forward to week two. And he struggled, like most rookie quarterbacks tend to do. You know, they're going to have up and down games. But the media made it about everyone but Mariota. Oh, my God, their offensive line is terrible. Oh, Oh, my children. What about the kids? You know, everything was the problem except Mariota's propensity to hold the football long and sack himself. We see it with Tannehill. You know, we see it with other QBs that hold the football entirely too long, like Alex Smith. Get rid of it. You know, he sacked himself a lot yesterday. Yes, their offensive line was a little bit different when Chance Warmack got out the game with an injury, which is a tough loss. Their offensive line did a solid job, I thought, for the most part. You know, a lot of times Mariota just held the ball too long or tried to get out of trouble and ended up getting sacked. So, you know, but the media perception was it wasn't his fault. On the flip side, you have a quarterback in Johnny Manziel who cannot do anything to change the way the media perceives him. You have a guy last week that came in on short notice, didn't practice as a starter all week long. McCown tries to go and beat Joe Kane and gets knocked out the game. You know, so now you got to put Johnny Manziel in. And he did okay. Actually, if we're being honest and unbiased, which is all we're doing here at Football Game Plan, we don't do it any other way. If we're being honest and unbiased, the kid saw the field, the, the field very well. He really did. Certain throws weren't where they were supposed to be. Placement was off, like on the interception. That was a problem. The read wasn't a problem. The placement of the ball was. But the dude saw the football well. The media won't tell you that. The major media won't tell you that. As Johnny Manziel still struggled. Now, yesterday, he only threw, he only completed what, eight passes, but only threw maybe 17 or something like that. Two touchdowns, two deep, accurate touchdowns. Because remember, they also told us that he wasn't going to be able to complete passes in the NFL. And the one highlight they kept showing was the, Alabama play where he kept running in circles, turning around, getting turned around, threw the ball up for a Hail Mary, and Mike Evans comes down with it. It's, oh, you can't do that in the NFL. Duh, you can't. But that's not his game. That's not every play of Johnny Manziel. But the media will make you believe that that's how he plays all the time. Well, you can't do that in the NFL. As if deep passes – as if you – I hate going back to one game, but go back to that Saints and Tampa Bay game. And look at Delvin Bro try to find the football in the Superdome. Dude, it didn't leave the planet. It's in there somewhere. It's in the air. Find it. He looked around as if, oh, my God, I can't figure out where the ball went. And it was a big game for Tampa Bay. So let's not, let's not act like the NFL, every deep ball is intercepted because you can't complete deep passes in the NFL and as if they don't have coverage breakdowns in the NFL. 
This is this is what the media tries to, to make you believe. And I'm here to do my just do my just uh my justice for you guys by telling you that's not the case. But Manziel had a, a pretty decent game yesterday in his first start. And keep in mind, this is only what his 14th or 15th quarter of playing football, and people are already saying, yeah, this is the part that I don't like. And, and here's where here's where it gets intense. When you have a guy that played well, played like a rookie, because technically he still is a rookie, 15 quarters of play. Played okay, played well, you know, had some things you could work on. He was inconsistent. But overall, he did a good job. They didn't lose the game because of him. They actually won because of him. So when you look at what people are saying – there's articles already out right now. Yeah, just to, I tell you, matter of fact, one article says, you know, even after watching the heavily hyped Marcus Mariota on Sunday, Cleveland will surely be clamoring for Johnny Manziel to keep starting. You know, it doesn't change the fact that he's always going to be a flawed NFL quarterback. What kind of sh- shysty, shady bullshit is that? How you hate on somebody instantly? You can be critical. But be critical for the right reasons. Don't be critical for the sake that he beat what you probably perceive as the golden child in two games. Like this guy played a great game. And if you are if you are one of the Cleveland beat writers or analysts or fans or whatever that thinks Josh McCown should go back to starting when he shouldn't have started in the first place, then you're crazy. There's no way in hell – if you're the Browns, you go back to McCown. You go back to McCown, the Browns instantly lose a game, lose games, and they go right back into the running of being what? A top five pick? Manziel will get better with time. Let me let me reiterate that. Manziel will get better with time. You get better as a football player, as anything in life, by doing it in repetition. Think about it. When you were a baby, you stood up, tried to take a step, you fell flat on your baby face. You got your baby face back up, you took another step until you got it right. Same things. When have you ever when in life have you ever got better at something by not doing it? So you think you're gonna be well prepared versus the blitz by standing on the sideline watching the blitz and not facing it? You think you're gonna be better in a two-minute situation? standing on the sideline, not in a two-minute two situation? You think you're going to be better at throwing accurately on the move on the sideline but not throwing accurately on the move, just standing there watching someone screw up? And it's tough. And people say, well, oh, you learn well by sitting on the bench. No, you don't. You really don't. Well, ha-ha, look at Aaron Rodgers. Ha-ha. Aaron Rodgers. Ha-ha. It's easy for Aaron Rodgers to sit on the bench. Why? Because he has a freaking – Hall of Famer in front of him. That's why he said, oh, ha, 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 Philip Rivers. Gotcha. It's easy for Philip Rivers to sit on the bench. Why? Because Drew Brees was not the reason why San Diego was losing. Drew Brees was playing great football. They really, if we're being honest, shouldn't have drafted Philip Rivers in the first place because they didn't need a quarterback. They panicked. They thought, Drew Brees was a problem. He wasn't a problem. It wasn't his fault. That's why he sat on the bench. You get better by actually being out there and doing it. And that's what that's what I don't like. The media will make you think that Manziel is the worst quarterback ever. But this is the same media that will then hype up Ryan Fitzpatrick saying, like, he needs to be in there starting. This is the same media that will hype up jo- uh, Josh McCown saying, like, you know what? Yeah, you got to go back to him. Even though we watch him go 9 for 48 you know, one touchdown, four picks, and 16 sacks in a game, we need him to go back out there and start because Johnny Manziel is not ready. If if McCown is, is what they consider to be ready, then Manziel has to be the worst quarterback in football history. You know, you, you see it a lot. Jameis Winston, terrible week one, above average week two, got the victory, wasn't a liability, made some big-time throws, did a lot of what we saw, both good and bad, at Florida State. The media perception of Jameis Winston right now, silent, because it doesn't fit their narrative. You, like I said last episode, some people in the media don't even like football. They really don't. I mean, I was at two games this weekend 
where I heard people in the press box talking about how much they hated college football. And they don't know why they're there. I'm like, man, I love being at games. I love football. I don't care if it's college, high school, women's tackle, football, arena, Canadian. I've been at every last one in the last two years. I love football. So you have people now covering the game that don't like it, could care less. They only want to make the game look bad. They only want to talk about the negative stuff that's going on. They only want to push those negative uh, perceptions of the game, whether it be from a play-by-play or in-game standpoint or these articles, these bullshit articles that you see talking about all negative stuff instead of focusing on what guys do well and focusing on, and, and critiquing from a, from a, let's say, an analyst standpoint. So you see this a lot. So you didn't hear anything about Winston. Manziel is still the worst quarterback in life. Mariota is great because everybody around him is terrible. That's the media perception and how they spin things. That's what I really don't like about the game. I also don't like, and I guess this is transitioning into, you know, things that bothered me this week. You know, last week we did that segment. But I also don't like how in college football, let's let's get started with that. Because, you know, I was at these I was at three games this week. I was at Florida State, Boston College. I was at Towson, Holy Cross, and I was at Maryland, South Florida. And, you know, it, it, the the rushed, the rush. Oh, no, no, before I get started, I got an email. And you guys, like I said, I was at three games. But you guys see me at a lot of games, right? You guys see me all over. You guys see me at games. You see me at events. I'll get that. I'll get to that. You know, I'll get to that later. I'll, I'll end the show with that one because that that really – ticked me off this morning um but what what i was about to say is the rush to anoint a college football player as the next great is amazing to me you know we saw it with christian hackenberg we saw it with week one and with josh rosen we saw it with dorial green beckham every play these guys make these quote-unquote freshman phenoms when they step foot on the field Everyone rushes to judge, to rushes to put them amongst one of the greats. Hackenberg's first year, if he came out now, he'd be a first-round pick. Josh Rosen, after one game. Oh, my goodness. Why can't he just go to the NFL now? I mean, he's completing passes against Grambling. He should go, and I know they didn't play Grambling because you're going to get the well actually. Well, actually, they didn't play Grambling in week one. I know that, fool. Grambling sounds a lot better than saying who they actually played. It's called setting up a joke. But you saw it with Josh Rosen after the first game. Oh, my God, he's, he's the great. He can take them to the national championship. Like, and they promptly go ahead on and lose to BYU. So now you look at, Dorial Green Beckham, high school phenom. I'm on the cover of every magazine from Prep Star to Tom Blemings, all those things. Oh my God, he's 6'5, 230. He is like Randy Moss, Calvin Johnson. He is, he might be the best receiver we have seen in our lifetime. He may be better than Jerry Rice. This is all talking about an 18 year old kid. Still wet behind the ears, breath smelling like Similac. And again, you don't have to rush to make these guys great. They have three to maybe four or even five years of playing college football to hone their skills. They're going to struggle. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to show flashes of brilliance. They're going to play average. The thing is not to hype these guys up because the hype can – because and let's be honest, because a lot of guys, you know – will read their own newspaper clippings because who wouldn't like, man, they're talking about me as the top pick. I must be really good. I'm nice. You know, I might leave after my sophomore year. Like, nah, dude, don't read the press clippings. Don't believe the hype. You're always not as good as as you think you are. And you're always not as bad as you think you are. But I think the media has in college football, at least has a rush to anoint someone as the next great. And so now what, what happens as a byproduct, you know, let's say, for instance, Jared Goff. I may like Jared Goff. I may think he has good game. 
but the media coverage will make you not like Jared Goff. They will make you go overly critical and try to find something wrong with his game. They will make you believe that Jared Goff is the next coming of Brett Manning, the next coming of Otto Marino. He is the best quarterback prospect in the world. Number one right now. Take the season off for golf. You see all those hashtags and stuff like that, all that funny foolishness. But for real, quietly, and, and it's just jumping into the quietly segment, but quietly, and I saw this a lot this weekend. Oh, he's just like Aaron Rodgers. He's Aaron Rodgers. Quietly, Jared Goff is not Aaron Rodgers. And if we're being completely honest and non-biased, like I said before, this is what we do at Football Game Plan. And I'm talking softly because I'm about to make a salient point. Quietly, Jared Goff isn't Aaron Rodgers. He is more like David Carr. Oh, but but David Carr got sacked. Da, 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 da. David Carr at Fresno State threw the football extremely well. This guy, and I was at the time, I was, I want to say maybe a junior in college or a sophomore or something like that. This guy, we and, you know, we had all the access to to you know college film and stuff like that because of common opponents. So we're watching this guy, and I remember sitting there in the meeting room, like, yo, this dude's accuracy. Is phenomenal down the field. Every pass was where it needed to be to where the receiver didn't break stride. David Carr was flawless throwing the football. I mean, I hadn't seen someone, and I didn't even worry about the three-quarters delivery or the funky delivery that everyone at the time was making an issue about. It's like, man, the ball's coming out. Receivers are catching it in stride, in between defenders, tight coverage, and the ball is being as if he ran down the field and placed it in the receiver's hands. That's how accurate David Carr was. I see a lot of that in Jared Goff. The good and the bad. The bad right now, I'll, I'll give you guys a free scout note. The bad right now in Jared Goff is his footwork. He has, you would think he's either an uh, a Broadway tap dancer or the field he's playing on is at 385 degrees Fahrenheit. His feet never stop moving. His feet is constantly moving. It, it forces him to dance. You know, he probably is a monster on Dance Revolution in, in the arcades. If Jared Goff played in the 80s, he probably would be a monster on a power pad for Nintendo. His feet never stop moving. So if I'm a if I'm a scout, if I'm an analyst, if I'm breaking him down from a defensive perspective, okay, we're going to get pressure in his face. Why? We're going to force him to move those feet. We're going to force him to throw inaccurate because his feet are not set. That's the game. That's the game plan for a guy like that. That's what you see when you look at it from, okay, if I'm looking at a defensive guy, I'm looking at it from an offensive perspective. What can I do to attack him? That's how you find out a guy's weaknesses and vice versa. If I'm looking at an offensive guy, thinking of it from a defensive perspective, what would I do to shut this guy down? That's how you scout talent and that's how you then look at guys weaknesses so for golf feet not his feet are not set they're steadily moving is going to alter his accuracy and that's where he cannot be effective and that's exactly what we saw with David Carr once teams realized that he wasn't going to set his feet they blitzed him it wasn't the offensive line it was because David Carr couldn't get out he couldn't get out of his own way just like I couldn't get out of that sentence, mumbling over my, stumbling over my words. But that's what I see in, in golf. So quietly, he's not Aaron Rodgers. He's more like David Carr. As an, and that's not saying because people will jump in my mentions. Oh, how can you say he got, how, how can you, how can you say? What about the kids? Like, listen, he's going to be a good player. He's a good player. I'm not saying he's going to be terrible. I'm just saying pump the damn brakes on calling this dude the next great quarterback uh, after four, three or four games because he threw a fade that you like look, that looks pretty. Like, go sit down somewhere with that. The next quietly, well, let's take a look at a position that I know very well, the running back position. Over the weekend, all you heard was Nick Chubb. Oh, my God. He should go to the NFL today. 
he is ready. It, here's the point. People are so predictable. This is so funny to me because people are so predictable. They do things that you expect them to do all the time. Guy has great performance in college football, in major college football, fan and or analyst and or beat writer. The NFL draft rules are stupid. Guys should be able to go pro if they're ready to go pro. Look at Nick Chubb. He's tearing up Troy. He's a freshman. He's a sophomore. He's NFL ready now. Like, no, he's not, man. Calm, calm down. Here's the thing about the NFL. Guys are grown men. You're not physically there as a 19-year-old. Yes, you may be talented. You may be able to make somebody miss and, and score a bunch of touchdowns and run, and Nick, and Nick Chubb is very good. But you're not ready for grown man strength. You're not ready for the mental uh, test that you will be put together, put under by coaches, by your position coach, by defensive coordinators that are facing you to stop you. All they have to do in the NFL is game plan to stop you. That's why all of NFL games are, are for the most part, close. Because they work years of breaking down your game. There's a coaching staff and there's a scouting staff that just breaks down the opponents. So a coach can pull up every handoff you have ever taken from your childhood because all he has to do is worry about football. He doesn't have to teach a class. He doesn't have to do anything else but worry about how to stop you. That's the part people don't understand about the, the NFL. But from a physical standpoint, guys are not ready at 19. You may think you're ready because you're running over Troy, you're running over some SEC defenses. I get that. And Nick Chubb, like I said before, is really good. But he's not ready. You know, and quietly, and this is why I love this quietly section, because, again, I'm going to talk so softly. I'm going to make a salient point. And this may be even my own opinion. It may be. But I guarantee if we were to break it down from a traits perspective, if we were to take the numbers off the jerseys, a lot of people would see the same thing. But quietly, Sonny Michelle and Keith Marshall are better than Chubb. Oh, how can you – if they were better, they would be starting. Dude, it doesn't work like that. The best player doesn't always play. And that goes from high school, college, to the pros. But quietly, Sony Michelle and Keith Marshall, in my opinion, are better running backs than Nick Chubb. Keith Marshall, despite the two knee injuries, is explosive and dynamic. He is a game breaker. Chubb is a really good running back. Consistent. I like that consistency. That consistency and that pro productivity is a trait in itself. I would compare Chubb's game to Jonathan Stewart. He's a dependable guy with good bursts. Sonny Michelle has a receiving element to his game as well. So you see a guy like Sonny Michelle that can run downhill, and that's why I love Georgia's uh, offense because these guys are getting excellent coaching. They have an excellent scheme to where their eyes are constantly getting trained, you know, so their vision is always on point. You look at the you you can look at the last six or seven Georgia backs, all have the same traits, all have good vision, all have good bursts. I'll have patience, you know. I'll have that flair for the big play. So we're talking about three good running backs right here. I'm not saying Chubb is, is a scrub. I'm saying Chubb is really good. But in my opinion, he's not better than Keith Marshall or Sonny Michelle. I think those who bring an explosive element to the game. Chubb is going to get – he's a volume guy, which is fine, you know. And he has proven to stay healthy, which is even better. So I can see Chubb having a long, productive NFL career. I don't think he's ready now. But I can see him being productive over the course of a decade because of his consistency. But is he going to revolutionize the running back position? Is he going to be a dynamic player? No. And that's okay. But I do think from a dynamic standpoint and from a total package standpoint, I need you to be a threat. And that's where Michelle and that's where Marshall come into play. So quietly, Chubb may not be the best back on that Georgia roster. Another quietly – and this ties into the whole point I was just making about people rush to judgment and also uh, people then look, people do what you expect them to do because they didn't rush to talk about the NFL and the draft rules. Leonard Fournette. Quietly, 
Leonard Fournette is not Herschel Walker. Oh, my God, I've seen that all this weekend. He is, he is ready for the NFL right now. Like, no, he's not. No, he's not. No, 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 no. First of all, his chest is not ready for the NFL. He runs high. And the NFL would live to have a back running that high and that uncertain uh, in the hole. They will sacrifice his chest. Every chest bone in his body will get broken. So he has to become better at running with pad level. But I will say this, though. I heard probably the best comparison for Leonard Fournette this weekend from Ben Naton. Follow him on Twitter. Very good football mind, good perspective on life as well. But he compared Leonard Fournette to Steven Jackson. I thought that was phenomenal. That's an excellent comparison. And I think that's where Fournette can be. And, yes, Steven Jackson had over 10,000-something yards in the NFL. He's an all-time great. I think so. But I think even at that point, Fournette, you know, is not that guy yet. You know, and Steven Jackson, when he came out, was 6'3", 230. Fournette is about 6'1", 225. You know, but Fournette still has some growing in his game to do. He's just a sophomore. But people see the runs versus Auburn who didn't want to tackle him and instantly jump to those articles like, let me write about how the NFL – I'm right, you guys – I don't know if you guys can hear me writing. How about the NFL's rule to the pros is stupid. Leonard Fournette is not ready for the NFL. He's not. He's a really good college football player who ran for over 1,000 yards in, in split duty last year and is going to probably get over 2,000 yards this season. He'll be in the Heisman consider. He'll be in the Heisman Trophy uh, voting. You know, he'll be. I think he'll be a finalist to get to New York. But let's pump the brakes on calling him an all-time great right now, because you saw one game at Auburn and think he's ready to go run against that Baltimore Ravens defense. Cornerbacks in the NFL will light us, <laughs> will light him up. You know, but he's a good player. But let's let's not pump the brakes. He's not Herschel Walker. He's Steven Jackson. Ben Naden did a great job with that, that comparison. I have to give him full credit because that's exactly that. – see, the difference is a lot of people hadn't seen Herschel Walker at Georgia. I, I was only, what, three years old his junior year at Georgia? So what I saw, and why I like Herschel Walker so much, I've always been a big fan. I'm, just, I'm speaking strictly from his Cowboys and Eagles days. You know, and obviously the Giants, a little stint he had with the Giants, but – you know, I've, I remember seeing one game of his as a, you know, when he was in the USFL. But even then, it was it was faint. I can't remember specifics. But everything I've seen of him from Georgia or the USFL, I had to go back and watch as a teenager. Because I, I didn't watch it live. But he is not as explosive as Herschel Walker. He is not as powerful as Herschel Walker. And he does something better at, than Herschel Walker did in his in his career. He has more wiggle than Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker was straight line, stiff, and will run past you and run through you if you stand in the way. Fournette has a little bit more wiggle. I don't think he's as versatile as a receiver as Herschel Walker was. You know, they both return kicks. So I kind of get the comparison. But that is not the comparison most people are trying to make. They're trying to make the comparison that he is the best college football player of all time, best college running back of all time. I mean, if you go back and look at Jamal Lewis's freshman year at Tennessee, you, you'd say the same thing. And his was more warranted because he was more explosive and more powerful than Leonard Fournette is. But Fournette is a good player. I keep saying that because I don't want people to think I don't like Chubb. I don't want people to think I don't like golf. I don't want people to think I don't like Fournette. All the good players. But quietly, let's pump the brakes, guys. Let's let's slow down. Let's try. Let's not rush to anoint these guys as the next greatest player of all time. They're great players right now in their own right. They can be great. They can get to great players. They can get to those all-time great statuses over time. As they continue to develop their game and figure out you know, what their body can and can't do and figure out what defenses and offenses are trying to do them, I think these guys will be just fine. 
But right now, let's pump the brakes and take a broader scope when we look at these prospects at college. Can we just appreciate the fact that these guys had a great game? They're doing great things. Not everything has to be analyzed for, for a next-level perspective. Sometimes guys just be good football players. And let's just enjoy what we're watching because you're going to miss a lot of great football if you're trying to look at everybody as a prospect and everybody as a next-level type guy. Just enjoy and embrace what you're seeing right now in the present. And right now we're getting a treat from the running back position with Chubb and Fournette and from the quarterback position with Jared Goff. We'll be back after this short break. I love football. I, I cannot get enough of football. I, I watch it on every level. The emotional release. You know, whether it's an exciting play that gets you all jacked up and juiced or whether it's the fact that you're able to pour everything you have. Whatever frustration you had that week, you can put into that first kickoff coverage, that first block that you have, whatever it might be. And, and I couldn't think of anything better to do uh, to fill that void that, that you have as a football player than, than to get into coaching. You get a chance to release a lot of emotion that you otherwise have no place to release. There's nothing else like that. Again, the relationships you build and, you're, and the, thing, the people you're around and, and watching the guys compete, um, not just on the football field, but in life after they get done playing. Uh, it's, it's just a, it's an amazing game. And welcome back to Direct Snap. And again, you can find that book on our website, at footballgameplan.com slash books. I suggest you guys grab that copy, grab both copies, and they can be great stocking stuffers. They can be great reads for you guys, great motivational pieces, because a lot of stories that were told in this book are some great inspirational stories from guys that you can relate to. Because again, we all have that passion. We all have that sense of, you know, want to and sense of greatness within ourselves. And I think these books help you, um, help guide you in that direction. If you're struggling to find what your passion is or what passion really looks like or means, this is a great read for you. So check that out on our website at footballgameplan.com slash books. Now we're on the back end of our show, and I just want to get this point out there before we get out of here. What's worse, NFL week one or NFL week two? Because you have week one overreactions. I mean, the Bucks were going to go 0-16, and, and you also had a team, let's say like uh, Tennessee, that was going to go 16-0. and because they got great, excellent, smart, efficient quarterback play. But now that the roles have flipped in week one, I mean, I'm sorry, in week two, now people are overreacting the opposite way. I just don't understand. Like, you know, and over the weekend, as I'm driving down to these college games, I was driving down to D.C., and I had it on Philly Sports Radio because by the time you get past South Jersey or get to South Jersey, uh, around that Philly area where you you exit well, exit three off the turnpike, for those that know, um, three or four, you start to pick up Philly radio stations. I mean, Philly radio was bad. Oh, my God, after week one, the complaining. I can only imagine what it's like this week after yesterday's game. But, oh, my God, it was so bad. You know, how can a fan listen to, you know, that radio station or th those radio shows where people basically – coaxing people to jump off the deep end after week one. I don't know if we're going to be able to win. I don't know if the Eagles going to be able to win a game. After what I saw, like, man, calm down. How does how do radio hosts not catch heart attacks with the amount of takes that's, you know, I mean, these takes are more, they're, they're steaming more so than, than hot wings. Like, geez, relax, calm down. You know? There's a chance an 0-2 team could go 14-2. Maybe it's not likely, but it's possible. Jeez, I don't know what's worse, NFL Week 1 or NFL Week 2. But you know, a point I was trying to make earlier about, you know, these college games, I, I got – and you guys see me at a lot of these games. You know, like just for instance, people say, man, I saw you at uh, – in Canada – with the Canadian Football League. I saw you in Canada with their college all-star games. I saw you at the Shrine game. I saw you at the Senior Bowl. I see you at uh, – I saw you at the, the the scouting – not the combine, but the veteran combine and the, the super regional combine out in Arizona. I see you at all these college games from FBS all the way down to JUCO. And, you know, you say, man, you're everywhere. I see you color commentating. You're everywhere. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I try to dabble in a lot of things, you know, because, again, I love football, and I feel as though the more you're out there – the better, you know, the better your product is going to be and a better perspective you have on on what goes on, not just from a technical standpoint, from an X and O standpoint, but from, from also a scouting and, 
you know, evaluation standpoint, it's good to see a lot. You know, it helps formulate your knowledge and helps you continue to grow. And so, yes, I, I am at a lot of games, but I do get denied to go to a lot of games. I mean, the as many games as you saw, at 40 games I was at last year, and at how, how many I was at this season so far? I want to say, let me grab my calendar. This season I was at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I was at seven games so far this season, and it's only two weeks in the college football season. Next week I'll be at Penn, Villanova, Cornell, and Yale, and New Haven at South, Southern Connecticut State. So I'll be at three games this weekend as well. But out the 40 games last year I was at, I got denied probably for another 40 or another 100. or another. You know, so um, I would say it's probably another like 40 or so. But these this, this one particular email I got recently uh, denied to go to a game, and they were like, uh, well, you don't cover college football. I was like, oh. That's interesting. You should say that because here are the list of the 40 games I was at last year. And here's the preview. Here's the last five previews of the games that your school plays in that I've done. Here's a preview of the bowl game your school played in that I've done. Here's a preview of a spotlight that I've done for your pro prospects last year. Well, you don't cover... You don't cover college football, and this is exactly what it said. You don't cover college football on a game-to-game basis. I'm like, wow. All of the video previews we do college football-wise, all of the podcasts, hell, I am even a co-host on a syndicated college football show that plays in Montana, that plays in North Dakota, that plays in Spokane, Washington, on ESPN Montana, ESPN Radio. But I don't cover college football on a game-to-game basis. So I asked... Well, what? Despite all of the forty uh, games and the you know seven videos I've sent you, what more do you need from 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 me on my end? You know, because obviously, stupid. This is you know enough to show that I am college. I am college football. You know, she, the <laughs> reply. The reply came back. Well, you just don't cover it from a you know article standpoint. Oh wow, so. If I just wrote down all of the stuff I said on these videos, if I just wrote down all the shit I said on this 15-minute video, that it, would that be enough for you? By that time, I'm already ticked. I'm already upset. I don't even want to go to the game no more. And so I was just sitting back like, man, people really have a hard time understanding who I am and what I do. You know, people, and, and that just really just pissed me off because people just uh, look at you and say, oh, well, uh, well do you cover the draft? Do you cover the NFL? Are, are you a CFL scout? You know, are are you a Canadian? You don't have an accent, so you so you cover high school football. Well, I saw you at the women's game, so so you don't you don't do men's football, right? You you only do the women's. Funny part is, I call myself a football analyst. Why? Because that's what I am. That's what I do. That encompasses everything that you mentioned, everything that you think about me, everything that you you wonder what I do or what, who I am or what we do at football game plan or, or what's our angle. I'm all of that. I'm a football analyst. That that means I cover the draft. Yes, I cover arena football. Yes, NFL. Yes, college. Yes, D1 to JUCO. Yes, high school. Yes, women's. Yes, international football. Yes, recruiting. Yes. Coaching, yes. Scouting, yes. Everything. If it's involving a pigskin, that's what I am. So when I say I'm a football analyst, I'm not a draft guy. I'm not an NFL beat writer. I'm not a college football, you know, conference correspondent. I'm a fucking football analyst. And I'm going to leave it at that. So that's it for this episode of Direct Snap. If you want to find the show archived, again, visit our website at footballgameplan.com slash podcast. I appreciate your questions. I appreciate your, your thoughts and sharing our podcast around uh, to your friends and everyone. And continue to do that because we're continuing to grow at Football Game Plan. We do appreciate the support. Have you ever felt? Are you listening? Damn.